The scripture this morning is from the second chapter of Genesis, verses 15 to 25. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, This one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The word of the God of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Christine. So last week as we began this conversation, we did so in a way that hopefully set up for us kind of the conundrum that we as a United Methodist Church holistically find ourselves in. That we're in a conundrum between a a slogan and an ideology of being an open church for all people that also has a particular set of doctrines and discipline that in ways is exclusionary. And how that particularly finds itself in the aspect of human sexuality, our conversation over it. And how so many of us as congregations could stay silent on this issue, but we know that there's a rushing onslaught from things in the general church that will eventually impact every single one of our local congregations. So we have decided to proactively, boldly talk about this. To have a conversation about it, right? Because there's many things that are happening around us, not just what transpired at General Conference and our kicking the can down the road, but now a a bishop's commission that is meeting and they're holding meetings and they're discerning a way forward for us as a church in polity, but also in practice and understanding and can we morph the the language of the discipline or not, those kinds of aspects that we're going to have a special general conference, which is going to cost the church millions of dollars to be able to do just to talk about unity and human sexuality, but also to to know that we've got things that are transpiring right now that are timely and sensitive with this issue. Because we've had a bishop in the Western jurisdiction who was a self-avowed person in a same-sex marriage, and now our judicial council has ruled that the Western jurisdiction elevated her to the office of episcopacy, in violation of our own discipline. 
It is a perfect no-win scenario for anybody, and it's a, a very untimely kind of conversation for us as a church because all this is going to do is ensconce us in our positions, entrench us even further in our positions. But we as a church still need to have a conversation, to be informed, to be enlightened on what is going on. Now, I, I had a couple of folks ask me what the impetus was behind this conversation. One person asked me if it was mandated from on high. Did the, did the general church in some way tell all of us pastors, you have to preach on this topic, right? Or was it driven by my doctoral project? Or is it spurred by my own family history, considering Margaret and I have a daughter who's in a same-sex relationship? Or is this just something I thought would be really fun to talk about for four weeks? (laughs) What do you think? How about E, none of the above, right? Kind of thing. Actually, the conversation is being driven by you as a congregation because I had many of you ask me after our last general conference the particular question, are we as a church ever going to talk about this? Are we going to open ourselves up for a conversation about human sexuality and where we as a church might stand on this? So it is you. You are the impetus behind this conversation, right? And then I was also asked what my goal was. Is my goal to generate understanding as we go through this? Is it to maintain the unity of Christ or is it to simply split the church in half? And I would tell you that it's the first of those two. It is for us to generate some understanding together, to have a conversation where we might understand what is going on, have a little context, a little bit more history than we might get just from some of the peripheral readings that we have. But more important is for us to maintain the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ that is called St. John's. My goal, in no way whatsoever, dear friends, hear this. If you don't hear anything else today, Hear this, it is not to divide the church in half. Do you get that? Okay. Do you trust me in that? It is not the goal. I'm not sure how many of us are aware, but did you know that smartphones were not part of the seven days of creation? (laughs) Did you know that? Right? Okay. Smartphones were not a part of the original seven days of creation, as much as we might think so. And for some of you who are young enough... You might believe that. In a time long, long ago, in a far distant land of the business world, there was the Franklin Covey Planner. This was the tool du jour of its day in the 80s and 90s, right? You probably remember one of these. I was always under the impression and the assumption that the bigger your planner, the more important you were. Uh, By the way, this one says Jim Hoffman in the front of it. I guess I'm not that important. Okay, so, right? But uh, that was what we used as as a mechanism, as a tool to manage our days and things like that. Most of you might remember that the um, one of the developers of that was a guy by the name of Stephen Covey, and Stephen Covey wrote a book by the title of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Now, you might not agree with everything that he wrote in the book, but one of the things that is a principle that I like and I I try to implement and utilize often is habit number five, which says, 
we should seek first to understand, then to be understood. How many of you find yourself in conversation with someone that you are on opposite sides of and you sit there with the objective and the goal of seeking first to understand? Are you good practitioners of that, dear friends? Moment of honesty, confession, the prayer rails are open. If you want to come up for confession, you could do that. Not many of us are very good at it. Because right now, I think in our society, what we find ourselves often doing is half listening while mentally processing what our response and our retort is going to be. And we're typically more interested in our own response than what the person is saying to us. We don't necessarily seek so much to understand as much as we try to be understood. And a lot of our conversation today fits that framework. We find ourselves in that. And yet to try to figure out as a church how to have a more empathic, listening conversation one with another where we seek to understand first. That'd be the main goal in all of this instead of finding ourselves in the retort mode to argument our point, to argue around that, to be heard in such a way that we spell out our truth and hope that everybody around us adopts it. If you don't know this, the church is in a tug of war. Imagine with me a tug of war, right? How many of you have ever done tug of war before? Right? You can lift your hands on this one. This is a participatory moment. So you remember, you divide up as teams. You get on the ends of the rope and you start tugging one with the other team, right? And your goal is, is to get the middle, the knot, to your side. And if you're really good, is to drag the whole other team all the way over to your side, right? Guess what, folks? That's what's happening in the United Methodist Church today over the issue of human sexuality. We're trying to drag each other to our side. We're not stopping the tug of war to have a conversation. So let's think about it this morning. What are the sides that find themselves in a tug of war today? Today we're going to talk about the right Your right, my left, right? So we're going to talk about the right and the orthodox traditionalist evangelical movement in the church. Some of their history and how they came about and and what it is that they firmly believe and why they are entrenched in the way that they are. I, I read several articles this week kind of on Methodist history and how these things evolve among us. This might be some informative stuff for some of you. Others of you might know all of this, and so this is your nap moment. Five minutes, okay? In the mid-1960s, liberalism as a theological perspective began to take root in the Methodist church. It, It actually had a strong foothold in the American Methodist church. It began to dominate our general conference, our general boards, our agencies, our publishing house, our seminaries, and even the episcopacy in many of our annual conferences. Liberalism as a theological perspective had a very idea and a central notion of what it meant to open the church up to some broader kinds of things. One of them was theological pluralism. 
And in theological pluralism, we were a church that wanted to broaden our theology, to, to broaden our conversation and interpretations around Scripture and God and salvation, the sacraments, historical and traditional doctrines of the church, to, to have a broader conversation and maybe broader interpretations that were acceptable within the church frame. I'll give you an example. A seminary professor of the day in the 1960s era pronounced that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax. He taught that in a class. And so one young pastor who was going through seminary heard this and he decided to pin a newsletter to his church, a little article to his church. And in that, he just simply shared that he was uncomfortable with that idea, that kind of theology around the resurrection. His newsletter article got filtered back to his district superintendent. And his district superintendent called him and said, Young man, you must remember that we are a church that embraces theological pluralism. To push the envelope out a little bit, right? One author said this, said, When it came to Methodist evangelicals and traditionalists, they struggled on how to respond to the church's liberal theology and programs. They, they thought they could ignore it, they could find another denomination, or simply decide to use their influence within the church to try to affect change in the way that they saw change should happen. They opted for the latter. So they sought to seek change in the church. It was spurred by an article that was written by a Methodist pastor who was a former journalist. The pastor was a guy by the name of Reverend Dr. Charles Keeser. He was from Elgin, Illinois. He wrote an article titled, Methodism's Silent Minority. It was published in the Christian Advocate, read by thousands of Methodist pastors across the connection. Dr. Keeser's main point of his, his article was that the orthodoxy in the church considered themselves the silent poor cousins in Methodism. But they weren't going to stay silent anymore. And so he called for, in this letter, in this article, an organizing, a promotion of evangelical, fundamental, traditional theology that followed in what was classified as the historical line of orthodoxy in the universal church. He became the progenitor of this. Now, you probably want to stop for a moment and ask, what does orthodoxy mean? What is the historical orthodox standpoint of view in the church? And for evangelicals, there are five main tenets that they hold as truth and fundamental to belief and doctrine. Right? They are divine inspiration and authority of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus, substitutionary atonement, the physical resurrection of Christ, and the literal second coming of Christ. These are their five fundamentals of faith. Everything else is up for debate and interpretation. They do not consider those to be as fundamental as these five things. So orthodoxy wanted to promote these and preserve them. And they felt like the church was beginning to loosen its hold on those beliefs. Right? 
So 50 years ago, the good news movement begins and their, their article and their newspaper begins as well. They create their own magazine, their own publishing house. They create their own curriculum for spiritual formation that gets passed around through the denomination. They write their own declarations and positions on different things. And they become activists in their own right at the general church level as well as in the missionary movement in Methodism. Last year, a, a new association began called the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and, and their purpose is to go in tandem with the Good News Movement to promote, to encourage, to connect, and to resource clergy, laity, churches, congregations, regional events, bishops, all these, to promote a more orthodox understanding and practice in the church. Now, one of the main points or contention for the Good News Movement and the WCA has, of course, been the decades-long drive for full inclusion of gay and lesbian persons in the church, in particular when it comes to marriage and ordination. Hear this, dear friends. The United Methodist Church does not exclude persons of same-sex orientation from worship, the sacraments, leadership, anything like that. Anybody is welcome to come to our church and be a part of our community of faith. The two exclusions in the Book of Discipline are marriage, sanctification, and ordination. Those are the exclusions in the discipline, right? But we've been in conversation around those two, and there's been a drive to, to, ex- to get rid of those exclusions and become a full, inclusive church. The WCA and the Good News Movement are standing their ground. They have a strong conviction and adherence primarily around the aspects of Scripture, because they have a high belief in Scripture, and also around our doctrine and our covenant. Now, believe it or not, we as a church have a fairly high view of Scripture as well. Denominationally, as a United Methodist Church, we have a really high view of Scripture. I'm going to do something I promised you I wouldn't do again after last week, but I'm going to read from the discipline again. Because I want you to hear our words regarding Scripture. It says, United Methodists share with other Christians the conviction that Scripture is the primary source and the criterion for Christian doctrine. Through Scripture, the living Christ meets us in the experience of redeeming grace. We are convinced that Jesus Christ is the living Word of God in our midst, whom we trust in life and in death. The biblical authors, illumined by the Holy Spirit, bear witness that in Christ the world is reconciled to God. The Bible bears authentic testimony to God's self-disclosure in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as God's good work in creation, in the pilgrimage of Israel, and in the Holy Spirit's ongoing activity in human history. The Bible is sacred canon for Christian people, formally acknowledged as such by historic ecumenical councils of the church. Our standards... Our being the United Methodist Church. Our standards affirm the Bible as the source of all that is necessary and sufficient unto salvation and is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for faith and practice. We ourselves have a high view of the scriptures when it comes to life, our faith, and our practice. That's what our own doctrine and discipline says, right? 
So for orthodoxy, they have this high view of Scripture. And as such, when they get to passages like Genesis, then they read it in that more literal, high view interpretation of Scripture. For them, they see in the passage that we read today, the creation of man and woman, the complementary elements of God that come together to become one in God's presence. And from that, to fulfill the commands of God in Genesis 1, which was to go and multiply, to procreate, right? And as such, then they complement that with other pieces of our scripture to hold to that view of heterosexuality as the only ordained sexual activity between humans, right? So Genesis 19. Anybody remember what happens in Genesis 19? Here's a a Bible history thing for you. Anybody? Anybody? Come on, close guesses. I'll take a close guess. Sodom and Gomorrah. Josh. Collect your prize after worship is over, okay? All right? Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 are the purity codes regarding how we are supposed to come to worship. Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, as well as 1 Timothy. There are seven passages in the scriptures that are used by our conservative brothers and sisters to condemn sexual practice between same genders. Seven Passages of Scripture. But Orthodoxy and Methodism also applies what we call the other Wesleyan elements of our tradition because we hold it not only Scripture but also tradition, experience, and reason. So we think through these four areas and how they all mesh together to inform who we are. So for the Orthodox folks, traditionally the church for 19 plus centuries has rejected same-sex marriage and sexual orientation. Experientially, societal structures have largely affirmed marriage as a heterosexual activity. And reason and rationale cannot affirm or does affirm that God creates male and female as the complementary to be able to procreate. You can't get past the biological aspect of that. That's the ground upon which the Good News Movement and the WCA stand and affirm what is also in our discipline and our ordination vows, right? They stand upon that biblical ground of authority. But they also stand, as I just said, on the aspect of what our own discipline says. Because for many of us, the conundrum comes in our wanting to do something that we think is more loving and just, and it causes us to break our covenant and our vow. Any of you ever been to an ordination service? besides Marie and a few others here who have been ordained. Any of the rest of you ever been to an ordination? So at an ordination service, the bishop asks some very particular questions of those who are seeking ordination in the United Methodist Church. I know you are all curious as to what they are, so again, I read from the discipline this morning. (laughs) So here's what I was asked at my ordination. Garth was asked these questions. Kyle was asked these questions. Have you faith in Christ? Are you going on to perfection? Do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Are you earnestly striving after it? Are you resolved to devote yourself wholly to God and God's work? Do you know the general rules of the church and will you keep them? Have you studied the doctrines of the United Methodist Church? After full examination, do you believe that our doctrines are in harmony with the Holy Scriptures. 
Will you preach and maintain them? Have you studied our form of church discipline and polity? Do you approve of our church government and polity? Will you support and maintain them? There's five other questions that are asked about visiting house to house, instructing children, um, leading by abstaining and fasting, uh, the use of your time and being diligent in the use of your time and things like that. Uh, The fun one is, is are you in debt so as to be embarrassed in your work? If you've ever gone to seminary, you have a hard time answering the question, no, right? Because you do have some debt from it. But, but to think about what it means for us to answer these questions in the affirmative. Have you studied the doctrines of the United Methodist Church? Do you believe them in congruence with the Holy Scriptures? Have you studied our church form of discipline and polity? Will you maintain it? In a church that has exclusive language against the full inclusion of persons who are same-sex oriented when it comes to marriage and ordination. Will you maintain it? The Orthodox Church in the United Methodist Movement says that is part of our covenant and that our covenant is more important than other aspects. Now I want to give you just a little bit of fat to chew on though couple things maybe to, to put in dynamic tension with this conversation today. Number one, I would ask you this question. How many of us believe that the goal of human sexuality really is just procreation? That God gave us this good gift for procreation only? Or is it for our also fulfillment and to make us complete as humans? I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but in our congregation alone, we have well over a dozen persons who have been single all their life or who are married and who have never had children. If if the only goal of sexual activity is procreation, are these folks less than in God's eyes? Have they missed the mark on what it means to fulfill God's command as in Genesis 1? Would any of us condemn these folks? The second thing I would ask you is, is, is how pure are we, you know, uh, across the whole denomination, how pure are we in our application of our social principles and our scriptures, dear friends, right? Because our social principles also affirms the traditional family as the norm, believes that divorce is never the answer to circumstances in relationships. We deplore sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, child molestation, and pornography. And we take a strong social stand against promiscuity and sexual activity outside of marriage, i.e. living together. We have a strong section on sexual ethics in our doctrine and our discipline. But how evenly do we apply those things? Where is, I would say, orthodoxy on these matters? Why is it that we're focusing on one element of human sexuality when it's a much broader issue for us than that? Here's one final thought as well. I'll just throw this one in for you. In the Gospels, Jesus is never asked about homosexuality. 
When it comes to human sins and sexuality, Jesus is only asked about heterosexual sins, never about homosexuality. So if you think about it, the misuse of our human sexuality, dear friends, could be broader than just the one expression that we are focused on ourselves. Societally, I think we are suffering the effects of the misuse of our sexuality in a broader context, even though we as a church find ourselves centered in on one form of this topic. We probably should be giving more time and effort to the broader issues that are at large, the concerns that we should have for them, and how they impact the life of the church and the life of our society. But for now, the Good News Movement, the WCA, they represent for us the orthodox tradition of our church. They stand adamantly and firmly on their understanding of Scripture and also on their understanding of accountability to our doctrine and our discipline. So here's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. I want you to think deeply about this and ask yourselves these questions because they form and shape how you enter this conversation. The first is this. What is your view of Scripture? How do you perceive the text of the Bible as God's Word? What is it for you? What have you been taught, formed, shaped? How do you come at the text? And the second aspect of it is, is as members of a United Methodist Church, you covenant together as well. So what do you think about accountability to our covenant? How are we to be accountable to these things? Is it even important to our life together? So next week, we're going we're to look at the opposite side of this. We're going to move from the right to the left. Or for you guys, from the right to the left. All right. And we're going to talk about what it means for the Rainbow, or the, not the Rainbow, the Reconciling Ministries Network, their movement within the church, how they were formed, shaped, their ideology, what it is they want to promote, and hope that the church itself adopt. So that'll be our conversation next week. But for now, I want to invite you to join me in our closing prayer. So righteous God, your mercy awaits us when we return to you in meekness and repentance. We ask that you cleanse each of us from our selfishness, our falseness, and even our judgmentalism, which separates us from your fellowship and fellowship with one another. Through your atoning love, we ask that you heal the brokenness in our lives and in our world. Open our minds that we might listen to one another, even though we might not agree with each other. Help us to listen to one another. And when your wholeness is restored, we ask that you help us to live for the coming of your Son, our Savior, for it is in his name that we pray.